How are you? What's up? I'm good. It's been a, a busy week. Busy week as always. I mean, um, when was the last I'm time you very, had a not busy week in your life? It kind of ebbs and flows. Like this week, we are in sort of the middle stages of wrapping up this documentary we're shooting. Adam and, Studios. Yeah, Adam Studios. Like a full length, like 43 minute documentary. And it was interesting to see the process of it. But also because in certain capacities at that level, it's hard for you to like self-fund a 43 minute documentary. Like there's an underwriter. So you have to like kind of still reappropriate because even though it's a documentary, there still is like a client, right? There's, there's still various agenda. layers of clients. It's a documentary, but it yeah. still has to say the message that the client wants to say. Exactly. Right. And how else are you going to fund a 43 minute documentary? That's obviously a rhetorical question, yeah, but you know what I mean, right? Mean for me to answer it. Yep. 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 Anyway, finishing up. Is that what you just said? Midpoint. Um, Past I mean, the... we have to deliver it in about a month. And oh, I think right. we have put together a pretty solid 43, 48-minute piece, I guess. And it's just interesting to see like the structure because obviously documentaries have been produced, edited for a long time. So there is a general structure to it. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I yeah. think there's a certain expectation. Let's put it this way. When you're in the quote-unquote business of creativity or just creating things, how, how you look at the process when you're 25 versus like 35 versus 45 probably changes. Yeah. Like you just default to doing things in a more efficient manner that sometimes because it's efficient, you lose track of certain things or you miss out on certain things. And I'm probably the most guilty of that. I also like have been working with like some sort of like younger people recently, like in terms of how to operationalize the process of like things that you need to do all the time. Like if you need to, if you know that you're going to be offering social media services, like you kind of need to operationalize that so that, you know, you're not flying in and rewriting the book every time a new client comes in, you kind of have a handbook. I also think that even if your process becomes more efficient over time, you don't necessarily have to apply that system to every project that you do. In the case of this documentary, it might be to your benefit that some things are passed over. Maybe the process is not as experimental as some someone younger might have it be. But on the other hand, I think it's to your advantage for other reasons. And yet, I don't know, if you decided to do some kind of lower budget, but personally really exciting project with Alex, then you could do a different system. You know, you don't have to adopt the same totally. type of efficiency across the board. Because it's funny, we, for the documentary, one of the subjects, we actually did another piece with them. And it was just very different, like basically given a, a blank slate to do whatever you want. And mm -hmm. obviously there's collaboration, but like there's an underlying story that this chef wants to tell. Now it's up to us to kind of craft it. Mm -hmm. And it's just like... So interesting and different. I mean, to be honest, shooting a documentary versus a semi-scripted piece are also two very different beasts, right? And like, I think that, you know, one of the guys that were was on the production shot for Chef's Table and even the process that Chef's Table was shot was different in the sense that they literally had like a ton of cameras always rolling. So it was never a matter of like having to get them to repeat something. It was just that there's always a camera and they had so much footage to go through. So it's just a different process. I mean, there's no singular way of doing it. No, for sure. And it is interesting that you can have one story told in multiple formats. And like the fact of the person is the same. 
like your subject is the same person, mm. but you might treat it in completely different approaches depending on, like you said, the client or the format or the budget you have available. Yeah. Yeah. I tell my students that too, because a lot of them are working. I have a couple of students who are doing their final year project, which they're meant to work on over the course of their last year at PolyU. And they get anxiety about whether something is the correct way to pursue a subject or to investigate their area of interest. Mm -hmm. And I remind them that if I had the same brief and gave it to all 40 of your classmates, everyone would do it differently. Yeah. So you don't need to worry, is mine the absolutely 100% correct like way? What I tell people is that the outcome in some ways is like obviously what people judge you on, but everyone has a different process. Even from a managerial perspective, like when I was younger, I felt like I was the one to instill a way to do things. But then at some point you realize that micromanaging people to do things your way incredibly exhaustive it doesn't really benefit anybody you're spending a lot of time the person on the other end is like oh i'm just a robot yeah there was an interesting line from one of the people in the documentary they're like oh you learn so much more when you do it yourself versus like me telling you and instructing you how to make this dish yeah right should we get into it let's do it This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, shop discounts, and more. Let's get into it. My subject this week in one word is Peloton, the stationary bike brand slash fitness company slash content studio slash exactly slash celebrity manufacturer. Their trainers are a type of celebrity in a niche area. Anyway, explain to me what I'm buying when I buy into Peloton for people that are unfamiliar. Mm, Okay. So on the surface, Peloton is, like I said, a, a stationary fitness bike that you can put in your house or wherever. And you own it, and then you can sign into or register and attend different virtual classes with Peloton trainers. And the whole thing is remote, and so you can be attending classes with people all around the world at the same time. And there is like kind of like leaderboard game function where you accrue points, and then there's also an aspect where you just get points for showing up, for participating, for you know following the fitness track that you set for yourself. So it's very customizable and they sell this idea of like, it fits within your life and your schedule and however you want to personalize it. So it's not like, oh, every, like Eugene and Sharice and all of these Peloton, you know, students have to have the exact same behavior. Mm -hmm. It's more about it being tailored, right? But on top of that, if you get a Peloton, you're also buying into a community that you want to be a part of. I think that's what they really sell and also is what people who enjoy Peloton talk about. Is this a COVID business? Yes and no. Because 
well, fitness is forever. Yes. Right. Okay. Like we all have health concerns and would like to be aware of how healthy our bodies are, but it really blew up during COVID because you can do it at home on your own. And, you know, for people in places where for a very long time you couldn't go to the gym or you couldn't, you know, the regular way that you work out was not available to you, then Peloton like really fit into that gap. But I think without COVID, it wouldn't have blown up to the degree that it did. But I yeah. do think it would still be, you know, in existence. Like it I think there's be, always in a need, but there was like a particularly high need at that moment in time. There may have been a slower ascension. Yes. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Because the reason I Kinda bring like this Zoom, up. Right? Like Zoom went boom. Sorry, Zoom was didn't, a good. Didn't mean to <laughs> Zoom was a good product, I think, before COVID. Obviously, it was fine. COVID. I mean, it was it was better than Google Hangouts. Let's put it yes, that way. Yes, yes, but COVID accelerated the extension, which is what you're saying for Peloton, which I agree. Because what I told Charisse was a few days ago, Peloton as a stock got destroyed because they just like missed all all their earnings and whatnot. And you know, I think that the reason why this is relevant is that as parts of the world, or especially, I guess it's primary market of America, start to deal with COVID a certain way, less people are like buying bikes, spending time on Pelotons, et cetera. So I think it's just interesting. You no, know, it is an interesting moment in time because what you're saying is the pandemic has lasted a while, right? About two years. And it's sort of enough time for some trends to take hold, but we'll also see where some trends die back down to a kind yes. of like regular amount of participants and, and, and attention I, so you know okay you know what's an interesting thing is that there's been a lot of discussion around how content in in essence is really battling for our time right like netflix is at war with fortnite not a war but you know no, what i mean they're battling because all of it is a competition for attention it doesn't necessarily have to be within the same industry like same games or streaming but exactly so i think that even concepts like the metaverse also will have to recontend with a battle for attention once people can go out and interact physically sure yeah so yeah, like that's yeah. my thing is that as much as you want to think that the metaverse is like coming it's here no doubt but at the same time attention is going to be very easily dispersed once you have more options more convenient options like sometimes it is just more enjoyable or convenient to do xyz and also brands can't expect the environment that people are in during the pandemic, all of these brands and companies could anticipate that the vast majority of people were within their houses and they're yes. going to stay there. And so they had this very like set place to work within. But once people are leaving their houses and going all over the place, you don't have control over that anymore. Yep. And I think, you know, Peloton's just one example of this where they knew everyone is stuck at home. Our competitors are really only like this certain group of people. But now that people are going back out, running on the streets, you know, swimming in the ocean, et cetera, their competition has changed. However, having said all of this interesting stuff about Peloton, what I read in particular this week comes from Anne Helen Peterson's newsletter, Culture Study. We've talked about some of her writing before. This piece actually isn't written by Anne Helen Peterson. She commissioned a essay from the author Sherry Ansari, and the reason she commissioned this piece in particular was because Sherry Ansari is a Peloton user and also has had multiple cirrhosis, MS, for over 20 years. So in this essay, she talks about why it is particularly significant to her as someone with an autoimmune disease. And I suppose 
this is for me, at least from my perspective, I don't know a lot about MS. And when I read this essay, it was enlightening to me personally, as just trying to get a better understanding of how people who have this disease are similar approach uh, the wellness industry and fitness. Okay, so Ansari in her intro, she writes, the wellness industry is not designed for people with physical disabilities. My body may look like it belongs with other able-bodied people, but it does not always function that way. I have had multiple cirrhosis MS for over 20 years. MS is a chronic neurodegenerative autoimmune disease, which is a mouthful, but means that my immune system is attacking my brain and spinal cord. My disease will likely get worse and there is no cure. MS is relatively common here in Canada where I live and impacts everyone differently. Chances are very high that you know someone with MS. We are everywhere. And I guess that was interesting to me too because mm. I I mean, I believe her for sure, but I also don't know someone in my life who has MS mm -hmm. or maybe I do and I'm not aware that they have it. And what's interesting to me is she talks about her entire trajectory of having MS and trying to do fitness because before she was diagnosed, she was a really active person. And then after diagnosis, she tried to just maintain her regular yeah. routine, like not giving into the disease at all. But then eventually, you know, it reached a point where body became increasingly less well. And one of the big things that she highlights is that she found going into a gym or going into a circumstance where she was working out with other people to be really intensely uncomfortable. And that other people were either she thought that other people were judging her or people actually were judging her. Mm -hmm. And she's even had experiences where people like came up to her and said, you know, why are you walking funny? Or like, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Like, is something yeah, wrong? Yeah. That to me is a really good argument for Peloton or companies like Peloton. I'm not trying to be like a Peloton advocate. But Just more like at home quality exercise opportunities. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But I do see it being as there are possibilities that are more than just like you put on a YouTube video, right? Because Peloton is more than that. Like Yes. Peloton and that new genre of fitness equipment, like Mirror is another one that was bought by Lululemon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where yeah. there's like on-screen exercises that you follow, like dynamic resistance, which means that if it realizes that you're at the final third of your rep and you're failing, then it might lighten the load a bit. So you finish your rep, yeah, right? Yeah, Stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. I think that's interesting to me. I don't, I don't know if this is particularly like metaverse relevant, but what is interesting as a thought experiment, I suppose, is this mm, ability to bring your gym experience or like your physical experience somewhere else into the home and then also removing the parts that are uncomfortable to you, you know, when you're outside of your home, which mm -hmm. is like the attention of other people, yeah. the unwanted interactions with other people. And you yeah. get control over that uh -huh. because you can turn on and off how much you engage with, you know, the rest of the community. In near her conclusion, um, this is probably the best praise of Peloton that I've ever read. Ansari writes, some have praised Peloton for its incomplete but still advancing manifestation of the health at every size philosophy. In classes, there are no mentions of diets or weight or size. You're not meant to fit into any ideal body type to be strong because the purpose of fitness is to be well and healthy, regardless of size. But I also think that Peloton embodies a health at every ability attitude. I feel like I'm part of a community where I'm pushed within my limits, but at the same time, 
The emphasis is not on how well I compared to others. I think that's something I've been thinking about. This is a bit of a hop and a leap, but I've been thinking about sort of this attitude when it comes to teaching. I, I know that Ansari writes health at every ability, but I suppose for me, I'm thinking of like design at every ability because I encounter a lot of my students who do great work individually on their own, but they struggle a lot with comparing themselves to each other. Do you think that is an issue brought on by social media or just by virtue of like it being the setting? I, you know what? I'm still unsettled on it because I go like back and forth because on one hand, I would say I'm an advocate for a physical studio space that the students are all within this like actual studio that they have together and that good things come out of being, you know, sitting next to each other. You might Correct. see each yeah, other's yeah. work, talk about it, get feedback. But then I also see how that physical space where they gather has negative effects, mm -hmm. which is the comparison. Yeah. On one hand, they might look at each other's work and get encouraged and inspired, but they also look at each other's work and get discouraged and defeated. One thing I've always wondered is that in light of that, how come there's not like a 30, not saying there isn't a third emotion, but why isn't there another emotion that's like a motivational one to like do better work? But there is. Well, you just yeah, said just like inspired. I mean, inspired oh. is, I think, different from motivated. Oh, sorry. Well, I would put yeah. just, if you want to put them together, I would yeah. lump that into the positive. Okay. So they're inspired and motivated to do. But it couldn't be demotivating as well. Correct. The problem is that it has the effect of being demotivated too. Uh, it can be, but I, this is obviously going to be a, an unpopular opinion, but like, it just allows you to recognize maybe what you're good at, what you're not good at. And if you're not good at something, then that's also okay to focus on things you are good at. Yeah, but I think it's the, I agree with you, but it's the being able to recognize that it's okay that I think is very hard for younger uh, people. Got it. But I see similarities yeah. between what I'm saying in this fitness essay because it's weird that actually within fitness, I can see people having that same experience where if you have you know, specific health challenges and you're in a physical space, it could be motivating. Even though I have MS or even though I have this disease, I'm going to push as hard as people without. But it can also be demotivating. And you're like, oh my gosh, like other people are so strong and well, and I don't want to ever exercise again because mm -hmm. I can't do that, you know? So it's like, I guess what really what I'm talking about is the challenges of sharing a space together. If you go like big picture, like it is the difference between, you know, what advantages do you get by being part of a community remotely versus advantages from sharing a room together? Yeah. I, I think that when you do have this very defined experience, especially with a Peloton, I think that it creates very rigid boundaries as to what happens within that sort of black screen, right? Like, I think that if you and I were sitting in a classroom together, there'd be a, a natural deviation of subject matter because there's moments where you're like chit-chatting or just convenient for me to turn over and be like, hey, you know what, I like your shoes or, you know, like, what are you doing this weekend? But I don't know if that necessarily exists in the context of a Peloton. I've never yeah. done it, to be honest, but I think that- Me neither, actually. That's something that maybe is a little bit tough when you're, I, I just imagine going to yoga class, it'd be weird to strike up a conversation within the classroom. But if you left afterwards, like, hey, you want to grab like- I don't know, an avocado smoothie together or something. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I get what you're saying. It's not a perfect comparison to say like design education is like fitness and the goals are extremely different. 
I suppose if there's something to draw from Peloton's example is balancing how much you set up a competitive space because Peloton does have a leaderboard, but the way Ansari writes about it is that the leaderboard isn't discouraging. Like she doesn't feel defeated by seeing, I mean, I don't know the exact UI, but the way she describes it is that she sees being placed on the leaderboard as inclusive just by being there within that space. Like a participant more than like. Yeah. Than trying to like compete for first place. Which is interesting, I think, because it's all about context and the way you set up the whole discussion. Because I think, I mean, from what I gather anyways, Peloton probably has a lot of like individual stats that help outline the the sort of fitness journey with yourself versus it prioritizing your fitness journey amongst others. Meaning like, hey, you rode, you know, an extra 10 kilometers today or you, you know, you burned an extra 400 calories in the last week. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think it's like competing with yourself much more than comparing your progress with other people. And then the fact that other people are there is just for that sense of positive community for just encouragement, a sort of abstract encouragement that's not tied to having to do a certain number of miles or reps. Like I think in short, like products like Peloton 100% have value. And I think it, you know, it's definitely going to continue to exist as a company. Its success might wane, obviously, you know, might ebb and flow a little bit, but like, I think these are great use cases for it that extend beyond what like the prototypical early Peloton power user look like. Yeah, no, totally. I I think that's uh, enlightening as well is that you might think that your key target audience is this, you know, really slim fit, you know, young person who's very bouncy and bubbly and like normative in many ways, but actually there are so many options available to that person, which is what we talked about at the beginning, right? Where as things open up, these people have all of the things in the outdoor physical world available to them. And there might be subsets of your audience like Ansari, who has MS or other people in situations where Peloton is perfect in a way that no other option is going to be. Yeah, that's like kind yeah. of the company dream, right? To find these pockets of people. That's it from me. And Helen Peterson is actually doing a series on Peloton as a brand, and this was the fourth in a series, and it's ongoing. So if you have a continued interest, you should go read more from her Substack. All right, nice. over to you. Okay. All right. My subject this week is Harrod CEO on the threat to London's cultural status by Sarah Shannon. And this appeared in Vogue Business. So for me personally, this is actually a really interesting topic because for the last four or five years, I've been very interested in this idea of like soft power and sort of the development and recession of certain people or places or things that have either gained or or lost soft power. I mean, I think I, a lot of it came down to how the US changed from 2016 to like now, right? Like once I think Trump took power, I think it was just like the way the world perceived America or this political rift internally was 
presenting it in a certain way to the rest of the world. It's not even just the political dimensions of it, but all of the types of arguments and tension and pettiness that was surfaced on media from that came coming from North America really changed the way people all over the world perceive them. Yeah. So it wasn't from a global perspective, they weren't necessarily invested in, you know, whether Trump wins or not, but that everything coming out of North America seems so ridiculous at that moment in time. So before you go any further, I want to actually define what is soft power because some people might not be fully familiar with the opposite what of hard power no i'm just kidding <laughs> good one um, um go for it yeah so it's an idea that originally came from politics but i think now it's very applicable across different pillars of culture this is the concise definition from wikipedia i didn't even click into wikipedia it was the one that was presented at the top of the search so like this is actually the super abbreviated version soft power is the ability to attract co-opt rather than coerce contrast hard power. In other words, soft power involves shaping the preferences of others through appeal and attraction. So in short, America is seen as probably one of the most dominant soft power forces in the world. And someone like China is perceived to not have a lot of soft power because they need to be a little bit more heavy handed. Coercive. All right. So back to the article that appeared in Vogue Business. It discusses comments from Harold CEO, which is like a luxury department store. Mm-hmm. That's been around for a long time. I don't know how long exactly, but a few hundred years, I think. Few hundred. I don't know. Maybe not a few hundred. I will look it up. Founded in 1849. So it wasn't Close. wrong. 172 years. Yes. So Harrods is a 172 year old department store. The CEO Michael Ward discussed how London was in a tough spot because the department store was going through a, a series of challenges, including high staff turnover and supply chain bottlenecks based around just you know, physically getting product into the country, also dealing with customs and duties. And this was a mix of two things, but primarily Brexit. So Mm. it wasn't just COVID induced. Yeah. Uh, And meanwhile, in more EU friendly markets like France, things are just humming along. Things are kind of business as usual. Or even better. Yeah. I, I would say better probably. Yeah. Better probably. So as Ward puts it, London was quintessentially the center of culture of the creativity of luxury, and we have eroded it down to being a bit of a laughing stock. It's more Brexit than COVID. I go to the airport and people are laughing that we can't fill our petrol up. So staffing has obviously been a big issue for a lot of companies globally or just businesses globally, because I think a lot of people have just sort of pushed back against wage labor or low-cost labor jobs. I mean, this is one trend that we will see if it proves post-pandemic to hold where people are fed up as you're saying, with low labor costs and the conditions and whether they are able to fight for something better. Yeah. And then on top of that, like for some of these people, like some of these jobs were traditionally held by people that were from uh, other parts of uh, the European Union because they found the UK to be an attractive place to go work and live, right? Like maybe the pay was good, et cetera. Or maybe they thought that the UK soft power was attractive as well. So despite all the staffing issues and whatnot, and, you know, some stats suggest that a lot of these companies or businesses are running at 70% occupancy because they don't have enough physical manpower. And I actually think this stat is probably something you could throw as a blanket statement across other countries as well. Sure. And despite all this, they're trying to figure out ways to make it a bit better. Like, oh, you know, let's, let's invest in you long-term, like through apprenticeship programs. 
So like Andrew Stembridge, executive director of Iconic Luxury Hotels said, we're focusing on how we can make the jobs more flexible with more benefits, but the government needs to understand what the problem is. Shutting off Europe was a mistake. And as an industry, we need to make sure people know we are flexible and there are opportunities to make it more appealing further still. So that in in, in a nutshell is kind of the issue that's going on. And I think I understand how like if the experience is if even the ability to quote unquote consume luxury products is compromised, then you have to come to terms with how it's perceived. So I guess for me, it's like looking at this whole sort of context where I think that soft power in reality is something that's lost versus it being like taken away directly by somebody else. Mm. That makes sense. So I think that someone's soft power and the reduction of soft power is based primarily on missteps. It's not an attack from another person or entity that's trying to steal soft power from you. Yes, there's an attention grab, which I think we all agree upon. But I think that what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch it up a little bit and talk about markets that have gained a lot of soft power and how they've done it. So I came across this piece um, that was shared in Studio D's newsletter by Yan Chip Chase. It's actually an amazing newsletter. And the reason why I find it so interesting is that they do a lot of interesting curation around just like how... Uh, organizations run, how cultures and societies operate. There was this piece called What Makes a Cultural Superpower? South Korea's rise signals the end of the age of empire and the beginning of the age of cultural empire. And it was written by Noah Smith. So what he does in this article, he kind of outlines that traditionally soft power was a byproduct of colonialism and imperialism. So markets like United Kingdom, France, the United States, they accrued their soft power because they just basically had a colony, right? They started taking over places and dropping their culture into those places and use it almost like a distribution method, right? Sure. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. So now the argument is that we're now past that and military conquest is no longer the actual way in which you generate soft power. There's other ways of generating soft power. Can I make just a personal aside here? Yes. Re- it's relevant. Yes. Okay. So I have a real life example, literally just from dinner last night, uh, we were with my relatives, Stanley and I, my husband and I, and Stanley's family from his mother's side comes from Cambodia, mm-hmm. which is also about like a history of colonialization. Okay. Like, so they're Chinese, but they uh, moved to Cambodia. And then when things got really bad in Cambodia, Cambodian refugees fled the country. And at that time, because Cambodia had previously been occupied by France, many Cambodians decided to go to France. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's last night I was having this thought that this is such real recent history because this is his parents' generation, like his aunties and uncles Mm -hmm. had this experience. And so when we talk about soft power in the sense of colonialization, it feels very real to me, or maybe just because I had this conversation last night, yeah. but this idea that oh, power, soft power originally came from actual physical occupation of countries, and only now have we kind of like moved past that into a, I don't know if I hesitate yeah. to say post-colonial like, world, but. Like even look at like in Vietnam, like a banh mi, mm-hmm. for example, banh mi being like a Vietnamese sandwich and it uses like a baguette, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. obviously French bread, yeah. right? Which is still a thing that we eat regularly. Yeah. I even know, there's, kind of there's dishes on menus in cha cha tangs where they're like, like kind of like cafes in Hong Kong yeah, that yeah, sure. have very strong colonial roots. It's like 
I mean, if you look at our Hong Kong milk tea, yeah. that comes from colonial yeah. roots, right? Yeah. And to think that only now can we move to a point where previously colonized places are establishing soft power separate from you know, the countries that occupied them. Which I think is actually a very telling sign that I'm going to get into more. Sure, go for it. Yeah. But uh, to use that point, like beyond South Korea, there are a few other examples of countries that have achieved a bit of soft power, like India and Bollywood, Jamaica and their music, Italy and fashion food. So it's obviously an asterisk around Italy. It's not that it's not like a well-known country. It's more so that it doesn't have the same colonial track record, I guess you could mm -hmm. call it. Uh, as some of its peers. Um, and obviously Hong Kong at one point had a really strong and powerful film industry for being just basically a city. Yeah. So now the argument is that you don't need imperialist foundations to create and exude soft power. There's different ways of achieving it. South Korea being the obvious example through television, movie, beauty, music, to an extent fashion, gaming, a lot of different things. Um, and I think what's interesting is that as we've seen this deprioritization of physicality as the determinant of like, can you create soft power? It actually just goes into like the intangibles of like just creating content, right? Like mm. the ability for you to, to disseminate an idea now obviously uses the vehicle of content, right? So while obviously TV and, and film are content plays, there's no it's not very hard for you to add a content layer atop everything else I mentioned there. So beauty. Yeah. Okay. Like ads or like incorporate it into like music, right? How do you create content around video games? Like streaming. streaming. Exactly. You know Events. what I mean? Right. Like all this stuff actually is just packaged in a way that can be easily disseminated through the internet. Sure. Yeah, so I think that I'm that's not, one of I'm the interesting you. things where, you know, you're saying you're seeing a deprioritization, which, in some ways kind of goes against what I mentioned before of like at the very beginning, I talked about like this battle for attention with the metaverse versus the real world. In theory, content in itself is still consumed primarily in a digital manner, right? Is it a contradiction? I don't think that it's a contradiction because the real winners are people who are able to create something in both a physical space and in a virtual space, right? Yeah. So gaming again, let's go with that. In Korea and globally, there are competitions where people gather in physical arenas and they sell tickets and you go and you get to watch esports athletes yeah. compete. But at the same time, they live stream those competitions. They broadcast it yeah. so that anyone else can, you know, take part. And then they just built an entire, you know, communications platform around whatever the contest is. I think the winner is people who can do both. Yeah, yeah. So like if it's just streaming, like let's say you just make a standalone TV series, then that's only, that's not taking advantage of everything available to you. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And I think what's also, what's also really fascinating is that the world has seemingly been closed-minded and open-minded at the same time. And I have to explain this because I think there's a strong sense of nationalism that exists increasingly. But at the same time, we've been relatively speaking more open-minded to like foreign content, if that makes sense. Because like obviously Netflix being a subset of this is like the popularity of their multilingual content shows that people actually are like okay consuming content from all around the world versus I only will watch 
Japanese TV because I'm Japanese or yeah. only watch. So I think that that's actually a really interesting, I guess, con- I don't know if it's a contradiction because I think even my nationalism arg- argument is is hard to exactly pinpoint. Right? I know. I'm, I'm struggling with it right now as I'm thinking about it because I do think there is a sense in our current generation. I mean, really, this is very new because like we said, colonialization was not so long ago, but we do seem to be at a moment where it's okay for a person to appreciate cultural products from anywhere around the world. And it doesn't mean anything about your ideology or your political stance. Yeah. Right. It's, it's divorced a little bit. So you can be a Japanese video game fan. And it doesn't mean that you think that Japanese occupation of China was a good thing. Do you, yeah. do you see what I'm saying? Whereas before, maybe like 40 years ago, that's what people would have interpreted you as doing. Oh, like you enjoy playing Nintendo. Like, don't you know that Japan did all these horrible things to Chinese people? But but then I do, want, I, I wouldn't call it closed-mindedness, but I, obviously, yes, nationalism still is alive and well in our world. Yeah. And people do still feel pride yeah. about products that come from their country of origin. Yeah. I don't think that's going away. Like, yeah. I think that if you are, you see global success for a product that came from the same place that you're from, it's very natural to feel affection. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't want to, Hong Kong produces uh, cultural products that I don't personally enjoy. Mm-hmm. Okay. In terms of like pop music and yeah. TV shows, but I still feel. Some type of, I don't know what to call it, like satisfaction or like admiration totally. that other countries enjoy these products, even while I am not a fan. It's like a conflicting feeling. For me, I think that grassroots is a very powerful emotion and sentiment. Like you don't have to be the best, but if it's just like close to home, like I think locality is actually super important. But I, I think in, in general, like this to me was like almost the perfect making slash making it up subject because it was something that crossed over so many like cultural lines mm. and it was so layered and nuanced. It was like, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, topics like these are, are really interesting to me because it, cause it's these invisible forces like that are less apparent mm. and it's almost the determination analysis of how this is created, mm. right? So I was actually pretty excited. I was, you know, we, we kind of delayed our recording because we were busy during the week, but it allowed me an extra day to actually stumble upon that Korean article, yeah. right? Which I think added a lot of validity and just supported the overall argument of how soft power is created. Actually, so there was a part of the Noah Smith article I wanted to omit. And I'm, I'm not sure why I wanted to. I think I was just more like I didn't want to detract and focus too much on sort of soft power and how you create it, but rather an argument around the sort of like the sort of geopolitical nature of, of soft power with the colonialistic uh, angle to it. But what's interesting is that like there's a, there's a way in which a country can sell soft power. I and think that's- the reason why you might not have wanted to share is because it's structured like a to-do list, like a, do these five things and your soft power will increase. But the reality is that no individual can do these five things because it's about an entire country's yeah. approach. Yeah, anyway, okay. I'll read why it. don't you say what they are? So here are a list of things that countries can do to sell its culture. Number one, be confident. Uh, that's what Korea has done. They're like, hey, we're confident that you won't care that it's an Asian hero on screen. We're going to create this for you. Uh, be corporate. So 
I think this is actually really important because art needs to be the seed in Genesis, but the corporatization of it allows its structure and visibility to grow. So, for example, uh, people love Japanese fashion, but maybe it was Uniqlo's corporatization that made Japanese fashion more visible and like, oh, people are like, oh, this is really high quality relative to Zara, right? Yeah. Okay, now pay attention to Japanese fashion. Uh, number three is segment products for foreign consumption. So that means finding a way to slightly modify your products to make them uh, more appreciated by new markets. So I'm making this up. Like an example of this would be taking a country's cuisine and adopting it for local flavors, uh. right? Like Chinese food, as you know, it might need to be modified for a new palate. Sure, yeah, which I accept is that. Kind of what we saw with like Chinese food in North America. But I do think the K-pop example was really interesting, and I have observed this. Okay, okay, maybe you you can shed some light on it because you've actually observed it. Yeah. It didn't relate to me. That's why I was like, I'll find a better one. Right. That, yeah. So he talks about how the K-pop industry they create different bands aimed at different audiences. So for example, Blackpink is aimed at American sensibilities. And others like twice appeal to Japanese audiences. And ever since I started teaching, my awareness of contemporary music has skyrocketed. Interesting. Yeah. In, just incidentally, I don't teach music or anything music related, but young people listen to a lot of music. And so just I have casually come across many new Korean and Japanese bands and have discovered that while the language is, you know, Korean or Japanese, their, you know, clothing, the backgrounds of the members, like all of that is definitely like so strategic in this way. I don't think you would listen to any of this. No. So I will just, you, you never have to um, get any closer okay. to knowing them. <laughs> all right. Number four is lean into your strengths. He uses the example Japanese music hasn't caught on like K-pop and Korean video games haven't caught on like Nintendo. So basically just pick and choose your lane. Right. And the last one is use tourism. The argument is that if you create a product that can be consumed, it serves as sort of this invite for the world to come to you. Nintendo world. Like I wait for the day where we can travel so that I can go to Super Mario World. Yeah. And that's like clearly me 100% buying into Japanese soft power from like top to bottom. So I guess in short, that that's sort of an encapsulation of of this week's topic. I find, like I said, I find this really interesting because this is such like a living, breathing thing where soft power is culture and culture never really stands still. It's like, yeah, yeah. you know, at the very end of this argument, Noah Smith suggests that today it's K-pop, maybe tomorrow it's F-pop and Filipino pop, right? You know, it could be anything, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. So it's I, hard to track exactly when something is going to capture the global imagination. Yeah. Good place to wrap things up. Yep. I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Making Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>